Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. This is Episode 7, The Attention Span Debate. Welcome to Episode 7 of EdTech Examined. How are you doing this fine afternoon, Chris? I'm doing pretty fantastic today. It's a nice day out. Yeah, I'm doing well. I've been doing a lot of cycling. That's what I typically do in the summer. That's my solo activity of choice. That's how I think about what I want to blog, what we should or what we should podcast. I contribute ideas. I always think about think about that stuff while I'm cycling or exercising. It's been nice weather. It's been, you know, mid twenties, thirty degrees for our American colleagues. I don't know what the conversion is to Fahrenheit. Hot. Hundred, let's say, ninety, something like that. Yeah. Going well. So we can go into our EdTech office hours. We do have a question, sort of. Well, a question that came up as a result of a Twitter discussion that I was in earlier this week. A colleague of mine at Mount Royal University was asking about the best, preferably free, but best options for doing video editing on a computer. So we've, we've touched base on this a little bit before. I know that Chris, you talked about uh, course trailers in the past and how you used iMovie to create a course trailer. So this, this question is in a similar vein. So what are the best video editing suites, preferably free, but for both Mac and Windows? So there's a few out there that I, that I've tried. Uh, we'll put a link to There's an interesting Shopify blog site, but there's some other blogs that kind of give a list of all the options. So I just mentioned one, which is iMovie. So if you're on a Mac, iMovie is the built-in video recorder for creating movies. So if you're trying to create lectures for your course, anything like that, iMovie is a great tool because it has a lot of built-in features such as titles and transitions, built-in music, all that stuff. A lot of videos are made on iMovie. If you're in the Apple ecosystem, it's helpful because of course you can do that on the iPhone and the iPad. It's all free software. However, that doesn't help you if you want to move on to something more advanced. So a number of my colleagues do use iMovie, but it is limited. And of course, if you use Windows, we can't just talk about a Mac environment all the time. Uh, So I've done some looking into this. And there's a list of tools that you may want to encounter. So one of them is called OneSh- or OpenShot. So that's a very simple video editor that's available on both uh, Mac and Linux. And another one that I would say that is Windows focused, which is kind of the same realm of ease of use, is Windows Movie Maker. It's kind of funny that we talk about iMovie and iMovie has stolen the show because Windows Movie Maker, in many regards, is an absolutely awesome movie editor. It has come leaps and bounds since the original, and it's a it's a very nice tool because it's of course it's built into Windows and it'll it'll output into a variety of formats. So OpenShot, Windows Movie Maker. There's a few others that you may want to consider. I'm not going to run through all of them. One that I want to highlight is something called DaVinci Resolve. So I don't know, Chris, if you've heard about this one. Have you heard of DaVinci Resolve? No, I haven't. 
So DaVinci Resolve is made by the people who are the Blackmagic company. So Blackmagic creates video cards, um, computer hardware, particularly for movie and audio production. So there's an, uh, lots of companies make these specialized hardware for kind of high-end video and audio work. Red is another company that makes really high-end video cameras. But the Blackmagic people also make a video editing suite, which is pretty robust, called DaVinci Resolve. And the current version is DaVinci Resolve 16. I've worked with it in the past briefly, and it's cool because it is very, very powerful. So colleagues of mine who wanted to move on from iMovie into Apple's Final Cut, which is essentially an, you know, an iMovie Pro, are often very, very happy with the transition, but it costs money. I mean, it's not uncommon for a decent video editor to cost two or $300. Now, if you're an educator in higher education, you may be able to get a university license for a deep discount, use your PD funds, etc. The cool thing about DaVinci Resolve, not only is it a Mac, Windows, and Linux video editing platform, the base version of DaVinci Resolve is actually free. It's a very, very powerful video editor. Uh, and there is a pro version for, I think these are US dollars, just about $269. That is not bad. Considering the cost of things like Adobe Suite, uh, this is a really good option. If you want an example of what some of the videos look like, there is a YouTuber named Renee Ritchie who does tech news. And I believe he edits most of his videos uh, or a good portion of them with DaVinci Resolve. And if you do a YouTube search for DaVinci Resolve, there's a lot of showcases on how to use the software. It's relatively drag and drop, easy to use, has a really good, fair, I would say a fair learning curve. In the same conversation, I also had a question about using Adobe Premiere Suite. So Adobe Premiere Suite is often available, even though it's a paid application, it's often available through a lot of universities. Here's the problem with Adobe, Adobe Premiere, and particularly Adobe Premiere Pro. It is a, a very challenging piece of software to use. It has a very steep learning curve. I'm by no means a video editing expert, but I have at least a cursory suite uh, of experience or a cursory set of experience working with a lot of these tools. And I would say Adobe Premiere Pro has by far the steepest learning curve. In terms of the professional software, in terms of features, I would say Final Cut and Adobe Premiere are pretty much equal, but I find it very, very difficult to work with Adobe Premiere, very much like it's very challenging to work with Photoshop and InDesign. These are highly specialized design tools. They're industry standards. They're very powerful, but they're very challenging to use. So something like DaVinci Resolve uh, is, a, is a really good alternative. Again, there's a bunch of these free ones. We'll put up something in the show notes. Uh, Lumen 5 is another really interesting suite. So there's a variety that are out there that are free, that are better than some of the built-in tools uh, that you can get on either Windows or Mac. Yeah, and I think you're right on the Adobe side. It, it does take quite a bit of a, a steep learning curve, especially amongst all the suite of products. So, I mean, one thing that people can do, Chris, if they have... Uh, and this this may be available if they're at a university through their university institutional library. It might also be available through their public library. But for a lot of these 
uh, micro learning, that's what I call it, that I want to do. I often do see if there is a Lynda, which is now becoming LinkedIn Learning course. And lynda.com is often available through public libraries, but also through universities, through on-site training. Uh, they have many courses on graphic design and video editing. They're not particularly difficult. I often have, I have learned to use Premiere in previous iterations through lynda.com and I've had it side by side, the, the software open on one screen and I have the lynda.com uh, instructional video on the other. So it is possible. I just find it difficult to get things done quickly. And I think in the case of a lecture, there's many great lectures that are put online, but unless you're doing a lot of color correction in the video or you want to add a particular effect, I'm not sure if there's a huge utility to going with a professional suite. In fact, I would say that even for most users on Mac and Windows, either iMovie or Windows Movie Maker 10, I think that's that's the current version, are probably sufficient. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've kind of talked about this recently even. Uh, it seems like with the whole uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic situation where before we might have even needed like a 9 or a 10 from a production value standpoint, with the, the content not being available, people are now getting used to even a 6 or a 7 out of 10. So, um, you know, and again, uh, for our lecture, I don't know if it really is that much more of a value add to go and uh, maybe uh, go and use some of these more professional tools. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, to your point, I think that if somebody has a high quality shot of their lecture, I mean, I when we're going to talk a little bit about this in, in our discussion section, but if someone has recording a really, if they're a very good lecture and they're a very captivating speaker, it's not uncommon for a center for teaching and learning to have a green screen or to have somebody film you as you do your lecture in a more professional way where they can zoom and pan. I don't know about you, Chris, but I don't think the editing software is actually going to make that much of a difference making that better. To me, it's really about the camera quality, audio, things like that. It doesn't have to, it's, we're not really doing, we're not doing blockbuster movies here. So we don't need lightning effects and transitions and stuff like that. A simple title and a date I think are sufficient. Yeah, for sure. Even that's where I think in one episode we mentioned like with Clip uh, that is available with the Apple suite that you can actually maybe do some of those just using your phone itself. But again, I, I mean, I, I think for the purposes of this, uh, just doing video editing, because that has come up as a question before, I think these tools on both platforms will be helpful. So we'll share those links. And if it's interesting to people, people don't believe me. I mean, we don't do video for this podcast, but we do do audio. And... I've primarily been doing the editing. We do have some outside help. A colleague of Chris's has been wonderful in giving us feedback, but there's a little bit of inside baseball for listeners. One of the reasons, in addition to collaborating with you, Chris, that I wanted to do the podcast was to learn how to do better audio editing because I'm a bit of an audiophile being a guitarist and a long time interest in music and learning how to do good video or sorry, audio production was a, is a goal of mine. And if anyone out there thinks I'm using Apple's Pro Logic because I'm working on a Mac. Well, that's a good guess, but I'm actually using the light version of that, which is GarageBand, and it's been fantastic. And 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 for what we're doing, we're not doing multi that many tracks and having that many sections. There's some advantages in terms of automation and ease of use by going to a uh, Pro software setup. But for us, 
I mean, Audacity or GarageBand has been our audio equivalent. I see no reason why most people or 99% of people wouldn't be able to get away with a fairly easy video editor. Yeah, for sure. So we were going to move on to a discussion item. So we have bounced around this summer in some of the sections of our podcast, but I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm, I'm starting to feel like we're getting a handle on the flow. I feel a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, I like the flow. I think we're, we're kind of uh, adapting to it, but this is where now with this new section that we've talked about for a while, uh, having like a meta section where we actually talk about some of the thought process and, uh, you know, considerations for actually developing the podcast itself. Yeah, and I think that you and I, the, the probably one of the reasons that we wanted to think about this or wanted to put this in the episodes is that in addition to EdTech tools, questions from listeners, and news, you know, Chris, you and I have a lot of discussions about why are we doing the podcast? How did we design it? There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes, and we really felt that larger discussions on discussion topics would probably be necessary to kind of flesh out some of the, even the philosophy around doing some of this work that we're doing. And we have really deep discussions about this. So we thought, well, why are we not recording this and putting this in an episode? Because these are not questions. It's unlikely that other people haven't thought of these questions. So the meta section that we wanted to talk about, we call it the meta section because on this podcast, from time to time, we want to talk about how we've developed the podcast, hence meta. But a lot of the time, this leads into other discussion items. So today we have a, dis a meta section, but we also have a another discussion item that's related on attention span that Chris and I have theorized about. So we've thought a lot about how we would develop this podcast and the format that it would take. But what I mean, I'm trying to think, Chris, what are the things that we've talked about the most? Well, one big consideration for us was just in terms of the length and the timing, in terms of frequency. And, you know, when we first started this, we thought, okay, we're gonna, what do we have from a time management commitment standpoint? And that's where we'll be able to maybe release like one episode a month. I think we could easily commit to that with the audio editing and just promoting and so on. But we. And you mean more for the fall? Sorry to interrupt, but you mean episode per month? Like this summer, we're doing a. Uh, kind of a weekly thing to get people caught up as much as we can for the COVID. But you're talking about starting fall, we're going to move to the once a month format. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and then uh, for the, during the summer, we basically just to help people with the COVID side of things was going to the once a, a week just to get a, more content, get people prepared. But then we thought, okay, well, what about if fall ro rolls around and now we've switched to that once a month and how about if, people they were expecting that once a week and you know the the listenership actually drops off what happens then well and i think this came up because uh, you and i did some research onto podcasting best practices now podcasting like you have pointed out to me to relieve some of my neuroticism which comes up from time to time is that this is still a fairly new medium so uh, the rules are not uh set in stone but there is a best practice that there should be some consistency in the frequency of release, which is why we've kind of settled for fall and moving forward on a, the first Tuesday of every month, just to remind listeners, that's when we're going to drop these episodes. But that being said, while we may have episodes once a month that adhere to this format, where we always have a question from listeners from our office hours, and we have a discussion item, and we have news, and then we end with a tech 
tip and then give a preview of what we want to talk about next time, we have these other kind of ideas that make our podcast go sideways. Uh, not sideways, I would say. That's a terrible way to put it. But they don't fit the structure. So I've been thinking a lot about why some podcasts are successful and others aren't. So I think in terms of length, they they vary greatly. I mean, some podcasts are very short, 25 minutes. Uh, I did a kind of a brief survey of the ones that I listened to. The vast majority are an hour or more, some of them three hours. I love Joe Rogan's podcast. Uh, he often has you know, academics on and long three-hour interviews. And he does them very frequently, like multiple times a week. He'll talk to anybody who'll listen, it seems. So there, there's a there's a huge glut of them. Where other podcasts I listen to, even of equal length, are more, you know, a weekly schedule. So they come out on the same day every week, roughly the same time. So I kind of know when to expect them and when we're coming, when they're coming. And I was thinking a little bit about because I subscribe to let's say a crap load of podcasts to be scientific. I think I, I actually listen to about 15. I have 15 podcast subscriptions, but I don't listen to every episode. And I'm noticing that there's some podcasts I tend to listen to more consistently than others. And I think it's because of the consistency and format. So Chris, you listen to, what was the one you listened to? You listened to Pivot, right? Yeah, so I listened to Pivot, and one thing that I found that was interesting, they actually went from doing once a week, so they would release it every Friday, and they decided to do it two times a week. So they release now one on Tuesday and then one on Friday. And uh, in some ways, it becomes a little bit too much, I find. Um, yeah, I so. noticed that too with Joe Rogan, because he'll interview like three people a week. And it's just untenable because it's like three hours, three times a week. I don't have nine hours to listen to one subscription. Yeah, for sure. And so the, I don't know, I mean, what the right balance is or not. But one of the things that we were thinking of doing was actually going and, uh, you know, delving in and doing maybe like deeper dives into some of areas of the educational technology. So, for example, uh, we're considering doing a episode on virtual reality. Now, virtual reality might not be that interesting for everybody or that applicable in, in certain fields. Uh, in a lot of ways, I actually think that VR might be overkill, uh, especially in terms of the time and investment that it takes to go and develop something in VR. Uh, I think it's cool technology. It's uh, something, imagine like in the future, you might even be able to go and have Socrates or Aristotle go and uh, virtually uh, do a some sort of uh, you know philosophy lecture in Greece in the ruins or something, but how much value does that add? And uh, well, yeah, and it may have more value to some disciplines than others, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, although in in this time, uh, especially during this COVID, and who knows how long this will last, um, uh, I I believe VR and AR could actually have been like huge uh, potential, right? So. We kind of talked about that yesterday as well, and it's and it's come up too because we we've done some interviews with people, and interviews where we inter well when we bring in an interviewee and we we talk to them we have specific questions for them we typically don't do that plus all the segments of a regular episode because then it would become very long not only for our time uh, we try to keep these to about an hour but 
ultimately it would be it would just become untenable perhaps unless we had very short interviews plus a regular episode so we're thinking what we might do from now on is that our monthly episodes will will stick to the format similar to this episode perhaps with some variance but we try to keep to the segments that we've devised and then interviews and some of these special things will be released released kind of as need be and that gives us the flexibility to do more podcasts when we have the time, since Chris and I are both uh, instructors, Chris has a full-time business. I'm a collector of hobbies, which is my own fault. So in the interest of time, I think this gives us some flexibility while also adhering to some of the stability that perhaps listeners would expect. So that's something that you and I have been talking about. It's interesting though. I, I don't know, Chris, I've been reflecting on the podcasts I listen to and I do listen to variety show style podcasts more frequently every week. But one of the consistencies between podcasts that you and I were talking about was length and attention span and developing a podcast, but also reflecting on the philosophy about the spoken word and the medium and best practices for reaching people in a spoken word. You and I have had a lot of discussions about attention span and if we need to challenge some of our assumptions about what we think about people and maybe how that applies to education. Yeah. And I mean, in one of the earlier episodes that we had, we talked about how some of the best practices for, let's say, doing a video lecture or some sort of short video for your course online, it would be kind of seven to 12 minutes. So uh, what people suggest is maybe 10 minutes because of this attention span issue. But at the same note, I don't know if that Sure, that is a suggestion, and uh, maybe there's some certain research behind it, but there's also videos that are an hour or two hours long, and so uh, I'm not sure anymore. I'm kind of starting to question while well, we're both having these kind of discussions, and I think there's, with the podcast medium itself, there's something uh, that makes it maybe a little bit more uh, accessible, and maybe there's a little bit of an intimacy when you have the headphones and you know you could even do it while you're going for a walk or maybe it's like you're doing a workout or something in the, in the background but you can still go and uh, multitask i say in some respects uh, because you know you can listen to something with some deep thought and maybe do your food prep at the same time right yeah uh, so i think that found time is really interesting that's something i, I don't know I don't know the answer to this. There was an interesting discussion on the Joe Rogan podcast. I think he was talking to Jordan Peterson and they were talking about, and he's not, they're not the only people that talk about this. Several academics have talked about the value or the revolution of the spoken word. And it's an interesting idea, right? Because if, you know, videos require some sort of, well, I mean, I suppose you could have a video on your iPad if you have a tablet or something or a laptop playing in your kitchen while you do food prep and have your wireless headphones. But a video format, you're kind of, you, there's advantages to video formats, especially if they're, you know, sharing content, but you still have to be somewhat present to watch the video. And it's the same with reading. You still have to be focused. I can't chop vegetables while I read a book, but I can listen to an audio book. And the explosion in audiobooks and podcasts and, and, and long form interview, I find really quite amazing. And for a long time, like you, the best practice about recording lectures and how long they should be 
I'm starting to think is wrong because we're perhaps finding out that people are have not only a much longer attention span than we give them credit for, so that, that could be students and otherwise, but I think people are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. There's, there's a lot of interest in long-form verbal discussion where people work out problems in a back-and-forth way, and it, that that realization has really changed how I think about perhaps education. I mean, some I think back now to student appointments that I've had. While I've tried to keep them short, but at the same time, some of the best student appointments that I've ever had as a librarian were ones that went for an hour and a half. And sometimes the student and I meandered a bit, but they, they learned a lot from the discussion. They left a lot more um, competent and confident. And we kind of worked through I answered a question for them, but perhaps another question came up that I didn't know the answer to. So we kind of worked through it together. So people have the patience for that. So it seems like it would stand to reason that people would have a similar amount of patience to listen to two strangers do something similar, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. And uh, I think sometimes even like those tangent kind of conversations that might come up, Right, like let's say a question gets asked and it has nothing to do with that lecture or that topic, but it can still be of value. And who knows what kind of uh, you know insights might be sparked by that. So um, yeah, again, uh, I'm not exactly sure what the answer is, but I, I've noticed lately some of my colleagues they're just doing full-on recording of their lectures and throwing them up on YouTube, and. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it might be kind of interesting. I was watching one and I thought it, maybe it would be something to do. Maybe we shouldn't limit ourselves just to like this seven to 12 minute kind of time range. Well, I could also come down to the, the personality of the lecturer, right? I mean, not to be unfair, but I mean, some people are more comfortable in performance mode than others. And, I, and that tends to be people who perhaps maybe more focused on the teaching side than the research side. I don't know, but people who can make more of a performance out of their lecture perhaps can get away with more on average. Perhaps that's the differentiator. Yeah, for sure. Though if you know you're going to be recorded your lecture, then perhaps you're more likely to put that performance on. But I've seen some interesting things too, Chris. Some of the lectures I've seen from academics, like public lectures that are more... Um, something slightly more advanced than a TED talk, for instance, maybe where they go pay to see an academic, a famous academic speak. Those are very different than recording into an empty camera. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why we have the best practice, because I remember I did a, an interview once where I had to look into a camera and all I had was an earpiece. And it's the oddest feeling. It, there's no feedback from the audience. It's not like if I had a lecture, a, a, a lecture, a library session lecture, let's say, and the full class was there and they recorded that. I wonder if that would go better online than trying to recreate, recreate that in front of a webcam. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's, we kind of talked about this when uh, we brought Leighton on the, the podcast, but Personally, myself, like I find it a little bit kind of awkward uh, being seated down. Like I actually, if I walk around, uh, especially if, if I am doing a lecture, I typically walk around the classroom quite a bit. And, uh, you know, that's just part of my process. And even 
I find myself, uh, you know, generally speaking, I would actually even, I think some people find this uh, odd, but if I had to categorize myself, I'm actually an introvert. But some people would maybe think that I'm extroverted, but really it takes me a lot of time and energy to put it on that, you know, so-called show during that time. And if I'm doing lectures, let's say back to back or doing two or three in a day, the next day I'm completely shut down and I, I just stay kind of quiet and, you know, rebuild that energy and, you know, kind of refuel, I suppose. But I, in the time I actually kind of feed on the, the audience, uh, the students, you know, and that kind of just fuels me through the, the session. It's interesting you say uh, on the introvert side, that's the same assumption I have about myself, though. Interestingly, I just spend a great deal of time doing one of the big five personality tests because I've been curious about where I sit. And and for those who are not uh, necessarily aware of the big five, they can be broken down into subsets. So they can be uh, the big five, but turn out to be 10. So there's things like agreeableness, conscientiousness, uh, extroversion. There's five major personality categories, and these are pretty good psychometrics. These are pretty reliable tests, at least for self-reporting. And I actually, for extroversion, Chris, I thought I would be way low. I was actually about the middle, 55, 55th percentile. So that would explain probably why I feed off that energy in the classroom in the interim, but then I kind of pay the price later, probably because I'm on that cusp. Yeah, I, and it's, I don't know, I mean, in a lot of ways, like these psychological kind of uh, profiles, I personally, uh, I think that there's times, like I can be both introverted and extroverted and to put you into that box, it becomes like kind of tough, but. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I agree. And so, it's, I don't know, again, just from my the psychology being a science, it's it's a little bit uh, difficult to just kind of just create those categories. But in any event, I, you know, there's definitely considerations. And um, I've, like, uh, you know, we mentioned, uh, uh, I think Layden, he kind of talked about this too, like his personality, his, even his students were saying this when we went to emergency remote, his personality didn't come through. I think in some respects, mine still might come through okay, like a, from a video, uh, like Zoom session. But uh, I do find myself, uh, generally speaking, if I actually was able to stand up and walk around, I think I would be even that much better. Yeah. We'll see how this goes. I mean, I like the concept of being able to be free to fill the time with both interesting and captivating content when you have the energy and you're passionate and that comes through because it not only reduces the workload for the faculty member because they don't have to chop it up and go into all the editing, but uh, we can kind of make some more positive assumptions about our students at the very least. So it's something to consider. I think attention span is something that I'm going to really start to reconsider as we as we move through ed tech and perhaps give recommendations and stuff like that because i i think that this may be one of those things that we always assume that's not true yeah for sure so in our next section we do have a couple of news items to talk about today so we have well we have one article from TechCrunch that's kind of speeds off into three articles we have another one from the world economic forum the, the EdTech one, the, the one from TechCrunch is interesting. It's called EdTech is no longer optional. Investors uh, die a deep dive into the future of the market. So the premise of this article 
is that the edtech market has been somewhat sluggish. Therefore, investment in edtech has been has been limited because of the growth. But Chris, you and I have talked about this. I think was this something that you saw or you listened to? I think this came from Scott Galloway. Wasn't that the argument that the next big things to be disrupted are more or less healthcare and education? Yeah, I mean, basically, was that was that him though? Was that Scott? Yeah, uh, one of the things that Scott has been talking about, is especially with these larger, the big, you know, tech companies. So right now, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, and then probably others uh, beyond that. With the way that the markets work, they have now surpassed the trillion dollar mark in terms of market cap. And in fact, during this COVID time. Uh, You've had companies that uh, like Apple and Microsoft are now at over one and a half trillion. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, like it's it's completely nuts. I mean, who would have but, thought in such a short span of time? But also, how are they able to? I'm not to interrupt, but I mean, I'm kind of shocked that they are able not only to get to a hundred, a one and a half trillion, but also in the span of a, a pandemic that objectively had a pretty negative cost on the economy. Well, but see, this is the thing that uh, Galloway kind of contests. And I mean, I'm sure there's others as well, but these companies, they're they're so big now. If you started comparing them against like other, uh, not even companies, but countries, they're like bigger than a lot of countries combined. Um, and Apple, I mean, the, right now the congressional hearings are even taking place, right? And so obviously we're pre-recording this episode. And so Amazon, Apple, um Google and Facebook, they are all in front of Congress uh, having those congressional hearings right now. And I, I saw one thing on um, on Twitter that Zuckerberg has actually now confirmed while testifying that he bought Instagram to stem the competition. But, you know, this is one of the, the issues where these companies, they have basically become monopolies and they're so big that they can't fail. So when you have a company like Apple where they control the rails, in this case being the app store, and they can actually charge you 30% just to have your app be in the app store. That's a huge monopoly, you know, kind of issue. Is, right? is it a monopoly? I, I, I don't mean to push back because I'm not feeling one way or the other, but I also think it's their platform. They made it. Is it a monopoly that they own their own platform? I mean, people could not use their platform. They could, they, there's lots of, I mean, progressive web apps in many ways have the power now of native apps, meaning apps that you would have to install. So do they, are they really a monopoly over their own platform? I, I thought they'd be a monopoly if they were the only game in town. Well, but I mean, it's, they're so dominant that you have to, there's a, basically only two games in town, uh, right? Where you have the Google. Uh, uh, app store the play store and then you have the uh, apple app store right so there's only so a two. duopoly so it's a duopoly and so that's that's the issue and then you're right like you could have like these progressive web apps but i mean for the most part if you look at it from a web traffic standpoint uh, the majority of traffic is now on smartphones so you know again it's either apple or android right so um, and i i agree with you i mean eric like there's a Apple should obviously get something for it. Like, and something recently that's come up is um, there was the founders of Basecamp. They actually launched their own email service called Hey. And Hey actually was uh, having the same issue where they were not uh, 
processing the payment of their subscriptions through Apple's App Store. And then, you know, again, they have uh, the founders, David and Jason, they have a huge Twitter following. They got on uh, on the, the social media and stuff and were able to go and pressure them and they probably negotiated. But it's the same thing. Like if you have Airbnb and if for every booking, if Apple was getting 30%, that seems a little bit egregious. And, you know, not... That being said, there are costs associated with it, right? So to host your app, to you know deploy the the actual updates, and uh, that kind of thing. So there should be some compensation. I just don't know what that number would be. Well, you make a good point about Airbnb because if Airbnb charged too much, theoretically, a, a competitor to Airbnb could. I don't know what their how difficult it was to set up their platform, but I'm assuming that someone could jump in there and perhaps provide competition where I think starting up a smartphone platform with an app store is very capital intensive. So I don't think that's likely. I know other companies have tried, but you're right. They kind of have a hold on the market because they were there first and they've driven out Windows Phone, Firefox OS, Ubuntu phones. All that stuff is kind of gone. So yeah, it doesn't seem likely that there'll be an entry into the market anytime soon to provide an alternative open app store. It's not like you could have an additional app store on the app store that had no app. Like, I think that's been tried too, and that's been boiled. Well, and even, you know, BlackBerry tried their own, but it was uh, it was difficult to get that movement. Uh, Microsoft, they had their Windows phone, and they actually even bought out Nokia, and then they spit it out again. Um, they haven't been able to get that track. Uh, uh, you know traction but in any event the actual like what Galloway and probably others are going and talking about to get to that next trillion even though in this such a short span of time they've been able to get to that half trillion mark during COVID uh, to get to the next trillion you're going to go and have to target certain industries that are ripe for disruption and probably the biggest ones which both all of these companies are kind of getting into is healthcare and education and so that's where educational technology is going to be a, a big thing for them. Uh, and, you know, again, like if you look at on the healthcare side of things, they both have wearable devices, um, you know, with Apple and Google, and they're going and tracking that information. Um, you know, you look at a company like Microsoft, they, uh, and you alluded to this earlier, but not only do they own the lynda.com, but they also have LinkedIn, which is, uh, I, in a lot of ways, I think that LinkedIn is what Facebook wanted to be as a uh, networking platform. And in fact, it actually is most likely profitable because where do you go and put job postings these days? Back in the well, day, LinkedIn, was, I look all the, yeah, I've looked all the time. They're really yeah, good. Yeah. So they're actually, they're making revenue by, you know, from those, uh, job ads whereas before back in the day i you might recall there was a company called monster and then there was workopolis and uh, you know it's funny what happened to those <laughs> exactly right so that's the big question so but yeah so i'm mean, now i think this the covid pandemic situation has actually in many ways i think it has accelerated the adoption and um accelerated the um, the disruption I, I suppose you could go and say and uh, so you if you look at it from a healthcare standpoint uh, you know there was just a few years ago there was a campaign for axing the facts and so places like rural Alberta you would have to basically get uh, your doctor to go and fax in uh, your actual prescription and I'm sure there's probably way more secure 
technologies uh, that are available to go and get that information over to the, the pharmacist and probably in an electronic format. But now, you know, forget about the fax or even email. Now the doctors are actually giving consultations by video. So that probably would have taken, who knows, maybe another 10 years to get that kind of level of acceleration in terms of innovation happening. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. I mean, I suspect that the pandemic, with the exception of those institutions that already focus on online learning and then do a very good job of it, this has probably revealed cracks in the foundation, so to speak, that those companies can go patch. Yeah, for sure. So anyways, uh, I guess uh, getting into the actual uh, news and maybe Eric, you might want to touch on this, but uh, there are some companies now that are entering into the ed tech space. So this article on, on, on TechCrunch gives a couple of examples of recent companies that have reached a billion dollar valuation. Now, I have to give some pushback on this, not because a billion dollars isn't a lot of money, but in relative terms, in terms of acquisitions and tech companies, it seems on the low end. I mean, wasn't Instagram acquired by Facebook for $2 billion or a $1 billion? At the time, that seemed like an outrageous amount. And today, that would be a deal. In fact, I use Instagram as kind of the unit for acquisitions, two Instagrams, three Instagrams. But that aside, there's a couple of companies that have reached a billion dollar valuation, which they, which they speak of. So one of them is called, is called Quizlet, billion dollar uh, company founded by Matthew Glotzbach. And they are basically an online testing. So virtual flashcards. It's a platform for doing online quizzes and, and things like that. To me, I've never actually used this platform before, perhaps because it's a paid platform. It might also be geared more to K-12. But I think of Kahoot. I'm looking at their interface. It's very card style, big cards. Kahoot is like is kind of like that, though a free platform where you can take quizzes and things like this. So that's that's one example. The other example that I think is more interesting is Applyboard, which they said landed a $1.4 billion evaluation. Now, Applyboard is interesting because it has two parts to its business. So the first one is that some sort of platform where particularly international students can search and apply on a single app, this apply board, to multiple universities and colleges across the world. So it's essentially a, a freemium model where, where people can apply to multiple businesses. Kind of like you said with, with LinkedIn, Chris, rather than having to search every company you're interested in and go to their careers page, you can apply right on LinkedIn a lot of the time, upload your resume and stuff like that. This one is interesting because it has a second business proposition. In the article, they say the other part, and I quote, the other part of Applyboard's business is on the university side. The section makes money from revenue sharing agreements with colleges and universities. If a student attends a college from using their services, Applyboard gets a cut of the tuition this is crazy. This seems to me like the app store model applied to higher education. You know, it's, it's interesting that you've come across this apply board because 
there's actually an Edmonton startup that uh, when I was in the creative destruction lab here uh, at the UFC, uh, it's a company called Zept. So that was in their original cohort. It's spelled Z-E-P-T. They do the exact same thing that what you're talking about, where there's universities that they've struck agreements with. And if they can bring uh, those students, international students specifically, to that university, they'll enter in some sort of revenue share referral fee type of business. I, I'm interested. So do you know how that works? So let's say they go to through Zept or Apply Board. So a student applies, they get accepted, international student, say they come to UBC, just for the sake of argument. The university goes into an agreement with them, so then they have to give up a portion of the, the tuition from the student to the company. Is that an ongoing cost, or is do you think, is that just the first year? I think it's just a one-time fee, like uh, like a placement kind of thing. Like if, let's say, we were doing HR headhunting, and, you know, typically a, a lot of these uh, HR recruiters, they'll go and get a one-time fee just to bring that person in, right? And that's why, like, you've probably heard of, like, headhunters, right? And so it's the same kind of thing. And I, if you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, even Galloway has recently been talking about this where um, especially in the U.S., a lot of people have been wondering about, okay, well, why haven't these universities actually announced that we're not going to do in-class sessions in the fall? And a lot of that had to do with international students because international students are a large percentage of their revenue that comes in. And on average, international students are paying at least double, if not more, than what domestic students would be paying for tuition. Well, and and particularly if it's in an Ivy League university where the tuition is at least fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year U.S. just for the tuition alone, it's interesting that you mentioned Scott Galloway on this. I'm wondering. I'm looking at these apps that take a, a share of the revenue, and I'm wondering who the target demographic. So, what segment of the market of universities is this for? And I say that because reflecting back to what Scott Galloway talked about. He made the case that mid-tier universities in the United States, I believe it was mid-tier universities, were going to be in the most trouble because the Ivy Leagues have a name. So let's say everybody goes online. Yeah. So the education, and we, we talked to Leighton about this a little bit in terms of competitive advantage. So everybody goes online. The Ivy Leagues have their name. They're really good premier research institutions. So you're paying on, you're going to online school with both the top tier, middle tier, bottom tier. And middle tier would be like almost Ivy, maybe highly recognizable state schools, things like that. Perhaps lower tier would be maybe more highly specialized liberal arts colleges, community colleges, stuff like that. But what's interesting to me is that he makes the case or Galloway makes the case that at the low end of the market, let's say the inexpensive end, and in the States, it's kind of always expensive. They're in a better position because they're already appealing to people that are priced out of, say, the high, the mid and high end university market. But in a time where everybody's online and perhaps tuition isn't that big a difference, the mid to universities, if people, let's say, is put off going to school because they would prefer a face-to-face interaction. They don't want to start in an online environment. He argues that the mid-tier universities will suffer because 
they neither have the cost advantage that the low tier does, nor the name advantage of the high end. And I'm wondering if these apps are more targeted at those mid to perhaps low, high, mid tier institutions. I just don't see Harvard giving away or Yale or Cornell giving away a portion of their tuition to attract people because they're already in like the top 10 schools in the world. Well, exactly. And then they're getting so many applications that they're having to, you know, reject a bunch anyways, right? So it's probably most likely those mid-tier. It's interesting. I, we kind of have two sectors coming into education. Like you said, on the one hand, we have these ed tech tools that are getting this high evaluation. But on the other hand, we're getting startups that take a take a slice of the pie if effectively and maybe universities can afford to give up a slice of the pie because they've had to reduce costs and, and shut down buildings and not paying for as much heat as a result of COVID. that that could be the case it's quite interesting although i guess the tuition isn't going down anyways even though some yes. people are pushing on that yes this is true they are pushing to lower the tuition and i'm not sure which way that's going to go a mystery that will unfold i suppose so we can probably move on to our EdTech Tools section. Chris, it looks like from our notes that you are going to be primarily talking regarding EdTech Tools. I've added a few things in here uh, to comment on a footnote, but you are going to be talking about uh, Medium today. Yeah, so uh, as you know, uh, I've been using Medium now for the better part of this year. I actually inherited uh, with uh, Mohamed Kayani's um, uh, Technology for Entrepreneurs course while he was on sabbatical. That was one of the tools that he used for the class projects. And so uh, I inherited it. I had a Medium account, but I never used it before. And so I um, started looking at it. And because previously when Mohamed, when he first came up with this course, so he taught it twice and it was called Entrepreneurship Technology. And this year, for some reason, they decided to call it Technology for Entrepreneurs. I had to go and figure out how am I going to go and do the Medium setup. And so I went in and created a publication on Medium. It's fairly should we tell people? Sorry, do we, should we tell people what Medium is if they don't know? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. We should talk about that. So, Well, I mean, Medium, it's, not, it's, it's not as obvious as, as Tumblr or WordPress or something. That's the only yeah. reason I ask. Yeah, no, I, I was going to go and mention that anyways. But um, yeah, so Medium so Medium is a blogging platform, and it was actually created by the founders of Twitter. And so if you have a Twitter account, it's fairly easy to go and set up a Medium account as well. And so I actually inherited Medium, and so I've been using it for the better part of this year. But Mohamed Kayani used Medium in his uh, entrepreneurship technology course. And so uh, for two years, he basically had all of his students go and do uh, their assignments and actually post it for the public on Medium as a platform. So it was a course blog, essentially. And this year, uh, while he was on sabbatical, I took over to go and teach that course. And um, one of the things that was um, uh, interesting is that they actually have changed the name. So it's now Technology for Entrepreneurs. So then I created a new publication and so I had to figure out how to do that and we'll include instructions on how to go and set up a, a publication. It's actually fairly straightforward. 
Uh, once you have a Medium account, you just go in and uh, create a, a new publication. One of the tips that I would give you is do not put a space in between the name. So if you do that, it'll basically in the actual URL, it'll start creating hyphens with each space. So I don't know, that's one tip that I would even recommend if you're creating a company on LinkedIn, it's the same kind of thing. If you leave a space there, it'll go and put a hyphen in the URL and then it's a real pain to actually get that vanity URL changed after the fact. Um, then from there, what you would have to do is add in all of your students as writers. And so as a writer, you can go and submit a story. So in this case, it's basically, it would be your assignment deliverable. That's for the most part, it's like a, a manual process. So I just have to go and copy and paste their email addresses over into Medium and have them go and register from there. Uh, some people are a little bit taken back. They don't want to go and set up like they already have their, you know, learning management system and then, you know, they have their email accounts or whatever. And now you have to go and do another thing. For the most part, uh, I would say that uh, uh, people were very uh, interested and they liked the creativity aspect because now it, was, uh, it wasn't going to be a traditional essay kind of format now you can go and have it as a blog and be a lot more creative have visuals and i mean i teach business communication so i'm a big proponent of uh, document design so i uh, i think this allowed them to go and have that uh, flexibility but one of the things i will say is from a, a universal design learning standpoint um, i would not make it mandatory for the students so i give them that option and it came up with some students, they actually even, uh, there was a little bit of, um, uh, I guess, people being uh, adverse to going and having their work publicized on the internet for everybody to go and view. So I, I remember one student, uh, and in fact, afterwards, so I, I did that originally the winter semester. Since then, I've done it for all of my courses. I've actually been using Medium and creating uh, Medium publications for each one of my courses. Uh, and I, I remember one student in my economics for business course, he's like, I, I don't, I've, I've done it in medium, but I don't want to publicize it until I get my mark back. Because once I get my mark back, if it's like a crappy grade, then I don't want that publicized. <laughs> but if it's a good grade, then that's fine. And actually an unforeseen kind of unintended consequence uh, that happened because it was going to be available and viewable by anybody on the internet. I found that the quality of work went up significantly in all the deliverables. And so uh, uh, it, it was kind of very um, uh, uh, interesting kind of thing that I saw over the course of the semester. And, um, and in fact, all of my uh, projects uh, in all the different courses, they've been of really high quality. And so uh, I guess it could become a problem if you have to go and grade on a curve because if they're all getting like, huge, um, you know, high quality submissions. But um, I'm of the opinion that it's probably better to actually go and just evaluate the actual work on the basis of the quality in the first place, right? And not worry about the grading as much, but. It's interesting you got some pushback. I mean, I've talked to faculty in the past about this because I think there is, there's two things going on here with regards to writing assignments that involve critical thinking that have kind of a multi-use factor. 
So one of the things that has come up in the open education community is the focus on reusable assignments. So I have a colleague in the library who does a great activity with the students, a fairly long activity of editing knowledge in, in things like Wikipedia and stuff like that. And I know other colleagues and other institutions who do that as well. The idea that you're using your writing skills and critical thinking to contribute something back. So making public your work and writing as a piece of that, of course, you have to give, I think it's fair to give students the option to opt out and they can't be penalized for it. What's interesting about Medium, I mean, I suppose you could set up a WordPress install or something, but the problem is, is that it, because it's not a platform, it's not going to get a lot of traffic. Where Medium, you may be likely to have people read it because they show up in the search results. I was just looking at the content rights and responsibilities, and Medium's pretty clear. I'm not a legal expert, but that you own the rights to your content, and you're basically providing a non-exclusive license to publish on the Medium services, meaning that if you publish on Medium, you can certainly own the copyright of that work, uh, and you can put it somewhere else. They also say by posting content you didn't create to Medium, you're representing that you have the right to do so. So for example, if you're posting a work that's in public domain or under a license, including free license like Creative Commons or fair use. So I've used Medium in the past as kind of a secondary place to publish works that I've already put together on my, my websites. So both my blog and my personal site. So I've, I've imported the story to Medium, just, and it says at the top, originally published at techbytes.net, and people can click the link and follow up on it. But it's interesting because Medium kind of gives you the visibility of what you'd want from having your own site without having to do all the work and the SEO to attract the traffic. Yeah, absolutely. And Again, even just for the students, I mean, I beyond Medium, I encourage them to repost like on LinkedIn as well. So you put in that time and effort into doing that assignment, you might as well showcase it. And it's a nice kind of piece that you can then maybe show to an employer. Um, I actually had one, one of my students this past semester, she happens to also teach at the UFC. And her work was so nicely done that I actually encouraged her to go and maybe submit it to Conversation. So Conversation is a website that a, a number of universities have founded to just publicize um, and uh, kind of distribute academic work. And so she basically repurposed and adapted it as a submission to Conversation. And so now it's been actually published for uh, in a, a mainstream kind of medium as well, right? So it, it was, uh, and then the other kind of thing, the, one of the reasons that I, uh, for myself, uh, that I, I kind of like this, having everything showcased is students, uh, both prospective or even current students, if they're in the course, a lot of times one of the questions that I get asked is, can I go and see a previous report? and what would constitute an A or, you know, just to get an idea of how to structure it or what have you. And a, a lot of times uh, I, the ones that I would probably go and share, then you have to go and get, uh, you know, sign off uh, from the students to actually share that information. And so here now it's just on there. It's already on the internet. Um, I mean, unless some student decides to go and delete their account or delete that post, it's probably going to stay there kind of indefinitely so at least you have a, a good selection and again you've got to be mindful that you can't make it mandatory so i give them the option i in my assignment details i tell them okay this is the preferred 
kind of uh, uh, deliverable is in the medium post but if you don't want to that's fine you can go and even do it as an infographic possibly or maybe you can go and do it as a word document you might even do a combination of those I had one student actually he went for the the interview assignment that we had he went as so far as to not only do the blog post he decided to actually record three podcast interviews deployed it on anchor and that was after he saw I posted this one article about how easy it is to go and create a podcast these days. And that was way above and beyond what, what my expectation. I mean, you didn't have to do that. But, you know, again, this is why I'm saying to you, like the bar just got lifted from a quality standpoint. And so uh, it's, it is kind of a cool uh, uh, tool to go and use. Uh, and the other nice thing, I think it's a matter of um, instructional design or just how you're going and um, designing your actual assignments but I use the principle of scaffolding as well and so their individual project if they wanted the students it's up to them but I advise them to go and use that individual one as a scaffold or you know to triage into their actual full-on group project and so if you go and do that first a little bit of work on your own and now uh, as you collaborate, if it's on the similar topic, it just makes it that much easier for them uh, to go and apply a lot of that work. And it's almost like the two birds, kind of one stone type of mentality. Well, I think it makes sense. I mean, I've worked with some of the psychology students in Mount Royal, and one of, one of the assignments is that they have an individual uh, paper or an article summary or something of that nature. But then they, so they do that individual work, but then they also can reuse some of that work, kind of repurposing it. And join up with other students who are who have been assigned a similar topic or field to do a more broader integrated presentation, which I think is incredibly valuable because then you have people go read on their own, have to synthesize the information, which is not as easy as people think. That's knowledge translation. That's very difficult to take a uh, particularly a, a review article or, or some sort of statistically verified psychometric study translate it to a different audience, not necessarily for your professor. Sometimes the, the, the objective is, can you translate this to parents? Or can you translate this in a social work context or something in that nature? And then join up with the other students who've read something different. And then, okay, well, how do we present an argument or a presentation that kind of covers all of this? I think that's, that's, that's useful because it has some of that, like you said, that reuse uh, to it. With Medium, it's interesting. I know one of the things that's been floated at, at universities has been providing, especially at the undergraduate level, providing more opportunity for undergraduate research. So right now, the opportunities to do that would be to, as I tell students, make a nuisance of yourself, get to know the professors. That's how I was able to score, not score, I mean, to get valuable RA positions, even as an undergraduate, uh, because I showed an interest and I walked up to them. But another way to do that would be to have, say, undergraduate journals. The only downside is that the management is, is heavy and then you're, you're setting up an open journal systems, which is a, uh, that, for people who don't know, that's a platform very much like a, a, a WordPress or a Squarespace, like a content management, but it's, it's, it's an open source platform for host, for journal hosting. But it requires a lot of effort and management. I mean, somebody has to oversee the install. So that's IT. 
somebody has to manage the journal and the copyright and the layout. So that's a that's a tall order for a faculty member who has a lot to do, unless that's part of a broader research project, perhaps. And then it's not always consistent that people are willing to submit their work to a peer review system. So sometimes while there are longstanding undergraduate journals, sometimes they publish one article a year because that's all they can get. So I think that I think it's a great idea and I think it's possible, but I think and depending on the discipline, but I also think that the bar is pretty high to get it set up where with medium, you could give that as an option. And you could run the same publication, medium publication or a medium equivalent uh, for subsequent sections. So if you built it into the curriculum, into the program, be like, as part of this course in all sections, we give students the opportunity to publish something that they feel is rigorous uh, in medium. And this, this goes towards uh, this kind of ongoing record of things in this course. I suppose you could still implement some sort of peer mentoring or, or perhaps non-blinded um, peer review process to build up student confidence before they submit something. Because even if they don't get an A plus on their paper, they may feel that if they could do a swap with other students or have, say, their paper... Um, and you'd have to, of course, counsel students on how to give appropriate feedback, because I don't think that's so obvious. Then that may bolster some of their confidence to, to put it in perhaps a public place. And then they could, like you said, point to an employer and say, I actually tried to leverage my knowledge and, and put it out there to the world. I mean, that companies create white papers and market research reports that are free for the public all the time. Well, and I think, uh, again, for myself, like I come from a branding design and a marketing background as well. And so I, I found uh, like medium is really relatively easy. I mean, if you have a little bit of the knowledge of design, uh, you can make it look a little bit better, right? And uh, I can, I mean, you can go and take a look at some of the, uh, the blogs and we'll, we'll kind of share them in the show notes. But uh, one thing that I did was I actually even branded each one of the courses. And for a bunch of them, I've created course trailers. So now that's permanently there. Um, if you don't have design expertise, I mean, I, I know how to go and do graphic design. I, I'm okay with Photoshop and it might take me like three or four times longer than my, my colleagues, but I can go and do it. But if let's say you're not, there's plenty of tools out there. And one that I would uh, recommend is there's a, a website called Icon Monster. And uh, Monster, I believe, is without a, the E in there. But in any event, uh, you can go and just download an icon that's royalty free and just put that in as kind of your uh, brand identity for this course and then just go from there and so you know again it's a i think it's a nice little kind of knowledge transfer uh, translation type of tool even for future students that who are maybe considering taking this course now they can go and see what type of work that they're going to have to do well i also think it's a it's a broader platform too chris i mean i think like you said like let's say you have students graduate and then four years later maybe you have a guest lecture where some of the students who've taken that course and gone on to to do business communications professionally maybe they want to be interviewed by students maybe there's something where you can kind of have a reflective piece it can be its own publication its own thing back and forth right i think that 
that's what ultimately leads to legitimacy, right? I mean, we think about journals. Why are they why are they legitimate? Well, they're highly cited. They have a high rejection rate, and that's fair. That's fine for scholarly communication, but I think especially for business communications, where that's not that's not the built-in practice. This is more applicable because this is probably more likely how real business communications are created, and then it can kind of become its own entity. I mean, I like the idea. Of course, there's. There's things like you said, which you mentioned, we have to balance quarter the ethics of the student blogging and, and if they want feedback from their peers, you have to train their peers how to give appropriate feedback. We don't want any reviewer twos on our hands. That's an inside joke for people who don't know reviewer two. Just put hashtag reviewer two on Twitter and you'll see what I mean. But it's a difficult thing to do, but I think it's worthwhile because like you said, that technology medium has really reduced the barrier and we don't have to do a setup. I did want to point out one thing um, for for blogging in higher education fits well into the practice of open educational practices. So uh, the field of open education involves OER, which is kind of the materials aspect of open education, open textbooks, um, open assessments, things like that, open courses like MIT Open Courseware. But the open educational practices is kind of the highest level that's very much sharing your educational strategy in a public way but also there's kind of a two-way street in terms of, of learning you, you, while you are the the learned uh teaching the the learners there's also a feedback mechanism where they can help you make your your class better and stuff like that all that aside there's a very good researcher of open education at the university of british columbia her name is christina Hendricks. i had the great pleasure uh, once at Mount Royal of having her come in to do a guest lecture uh, on open education and some of her work around that. She has a really cool blog. You can you can Google her uh, and you'll find it. She has talked about reusable assignments and the value of portfolios. So students leaving with something tangible. Um, on her blog, she also discusses the the blogging for educators as well as for students and the, and the ethics around that. And I think she has some really interesting thoughts. If you do a Google search for student blogging and open education, you'll also get a lot of blog articles by educators uh, who have done this kind of work and things like that. So I think there's a lot of information out there. So I figured we would give uh, a bit of a preview to what the next episode would be about. So Chris and I often pre-record these uh, because this is the summer, like Chris said, we're doing we're doing weekly podcasts to, to get people up to speed as much as possible with tools that might be useful for teaching online. But I do want to give a preview of our next episode. So in this episode, we kind of did a deep dive on our discussion item, really talking about how we developed the podcast, how we thought about length, and that led to attention span. One of the things that I, I'd also like to discuss, which I think is valuable to both educators and students, are organizational systems and particularly those that encourage deep work. The academic who I've spoken about, uh, I think at least in passing, Cal Newport at Georgetown University, he's a computer science professor. He wrote a really great book called Deep Work. In fact, he's written a number of great books. The first one he wrote when he was 21 was how to be a, I think it was like how to be a straight A or superstar high school student or something like that. He really cares in addition to being a computer scientist, he cares deeply about productivity, organization, and strategies that keep people on track. Deep Work is a phenomenal book. He wrote another book called Digital Minimalism, which is about reducing digital distraction. But in Deep Work, he talks about 
strategies for capturing ideas, getting them out of your mind and planning your day. And we're going to do, I want to do a little bit of a deep dive on our next episode talking about what deep work means and particularly not only the philosophy of deep work, but also his concepts of capture, configure, and control. So how to capture thoughts and ideas, how to configure them, meaning to uh, plan them out and then and control. Perhaps it's capture, control, configure. Either way, we're going to talk about those three. Um, I also want to talk, or we also want to talk next episode about note-taking apps in general for capturing ideas. So the ones that have worked for us here in the past, uh, some of the options I have tried lots and some of them have really huge upsides as well as some massive deal breakers. So I want to talk about that. And this will also include handwritten notes. So for those of the people who've listened in the past, I'm a big iPad Pro user. I love handwritten notes, though I'll have options for how this can be done in terms of uh, Windows 10. Surface devices are really good for this. Android tablets are really good for this that have pen input. So we'll talk about some of those for doing digital handwriting. And that also includes scanning analog notes with OCR and importing them so they're searchable and things like that. So there's a there's a bunch of note taking and kind of note capture apps that we're going to go through. So we'll kind of have an extended uh, EdTech Tools segment for next episode. Sounds like a plan. Okay, Chris. So just for so our listeners know, how can they contact you? So they can find me on, on my website is Chris with a K, so K-R-I-S-H-A-N-S dot C-A. My Twitter handle is at Chris Hans. You can also find me uh, at marketgrade.com. And I'm Eric Christensen. Uh, you can reach me in a few places. My website is ericchristensen.net. That's Eric with a K. Twitter at E.G. Christensen, and I also have a tech blog where I talk about the mobile technology industry at TechBytes, tech-bytes.net. Now, there's a few ways you can get in touch with EdTech Examined. You can subscribe to EdTech Examined through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or through your favorite podcast app. We support pretty much everything. You can contact EdTech Examined through our email account, Hey at edtechexamined.com or by Twitter at edtechexamined. You can also find us on Instagram at edtechexamined. To find out more about the EdTech Examined podcast, please visit edtechexamined.com. That'll direct you to episodes. Uh, hopefully by the time this airs or just shortly after, we'll have built out the site a little bit. But on that site, you will, in the future, you'll be able to find links on our social media accounts, uh, how to subscribe to the podcast. And following that, some of the blog posts that we've already put on Medium at EdTech Examined, article links and, and additional show notes and things of that sort. So thank you very much, Chris. This has been fun. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. And, and thanks to you listeners. Uh, until next time.